Peter Osnos has published hundreds of nonfiction books in his career as founder of the New York-based Public Affairs Books. He has now written a memoir about his own life called An Especially Good View, Watching History Happen. The National Book Review writes, quote, Osnos has not written a memoir so much as a report from the front. Make that many fronts. The great news events of the past half century. We talk with Mr. Osnos about his time in Vietnam and the Soviet Union, among other things. Peter Osnos, before we talk about your autobiography slash memoir, I have uh, a series of 10 questions I want to ask you. And uh, I know this is a little bit of a curveball, but I know you're up to it. So here we go. This is, these are <laughs> questions that um, actually we used it in a college class a couple of months ago, and it was interesting to ask uh-huh. guests these. So stand by. Here we go. You ready? All right. The, fir- the first question is, what is the best book you have ever read? The best book I've ever read. I'll tell you, in the last few years, the most in lightning book I've read was Jill Lepore's These Truths, which is a standard, which is a full history of the, of the United States from 1492 to the present. And why it was so important was it was the first book without a lot of shrill and a lot of polemic and a lot of you know extra heavy breathing that really described the trajectory of the country and the degree to which it was started by well-meaning white men uh, in which women and people of color of all kinds, uh, Native Americans and so forth, were marginalized. All right. And second question. The story of them, I'm going to keep uh, moving because we, we'll, yeah. we'll never get because we got to get to your book. All right. The second question is, right. who do you think was the most important person in history? The most important person in history, I would say, probably in, in world history. Just history. Uh, just just a pick a name. You know, I really, I really, it's impossible because I have so many. But let me just, you know, choose one that I think Albert Einstein, because he was at the intersection of advanced science and humanism. And what we need in this culture, in our world, is both those things advanced science and a sense of humanity. All right. Number three, what was your most important college course? Oh, my most important college course wasn't in the newsroom. Uh, it's when a fellow at Brandeis, a lawyer from Mississippi, took me and two other guys down to Mississippi for a visit in 1962, which completely changed my view of the way things work, because for the first time I saw true, true, true poverty. I saw segregation. I saw all the ways in which this country had goals that had not yet been met, and I found that completely fascinating. What I learned in the newsroom, I mean, what I learned in the classroom was secondary. Number four. To me, at least. Number four. What is the trait that you admire most in other people? I'm a big fan of uh, a combination of courage and humility. On um, a level, that's number five, uh, on a level of one to five, how ambitious are you? Well, when I was starting out, I was, what's five is most? Yes. I was probably a five when I started, and now I'm much more realistic. It's more like a three. (laughs) My ambitions now are different. They're they're not to, you know, I never wanted to be rich. I just wanted to do stuff that made a difference. 
Six. What has been your biggest disappointment? My biggest disappointment, I guess, is the discovery, the understanding as time went on of the flaws in our culture, uh, the flaws that have led to so many uh, wars that were unnecessary and a divisiveness that was unnecessary. What I found is that we are, because we're humans, we make an awful lot of mistakes and we don't learn from them. Seven. If you have a free hour or two, what would we find you doing? Talking to Brian Lamb. No, I think, (laughs) (laughs) well, what I have found, uh, you know, I just got off my bike. Uh, We're out here in rural Michigan on the lake. It's a beautiful morning, and I just spent an hour on the bike. And I came back, and I just said, this is okay. This is okay. It's a bike, and it's me, and it's sunny, and I'm at peace with the surroundings. Eight, if you could have had a profession other than the one you chose, and I know you had a couple, but what would it be? I think, uh, well, I I guess the real way to answer that is that I probably would have tried to do something uh, in the NGO world, um, which actually got me to places where people needed the help that I would be in a position to provide. I was always the observer, the watcher. Uh, I was doing stuff from a distance. But there were folks who did it up close, and that's what I probably would have done. NGO meaning non-governmental organizations. Non-governmental organizations, yeah. Nine, we've got two to go. Nine, this is Mm -hmm. somewhat irrelevant. Do you collect anything, and if so, what? I don't. I don't have. I don't have a, a hobby collection of that kind. No, I suppose I collect experiences. And finally, what has been the hardest task in your life? The hardest task in my life, I guess it's probably been making myself ultimately understand myself, which is the purpose of this book. Because none of us really know who we are until we ask some hard questions like the ones you've just been asking. And I took on this mission to describe myself, and I think uh, I have a much better understanding of it, which is why I could answer these other nine questions without sounding like a jerk. Oh, the fun thing about asking these questions is so people, you know, they're all over the lot, which makes it interesting. But of course. Go to your right. – go to your. do you want to call this a memoir or an autobiography? I call it a reported memoir, meaning that its basic frame is memory, uh, a life of experiences – um, starting with even before I was born, and almost literally to today. And yet I couldn't trust my memory alone. So I did what I had been trained to do, is I went back and reported every aspect of the story, going all the way back to my parents' lives, visiting where they lived uh, before, well before I was born, uh, you know, reporting in the sense that I would call people and say, did this really happen the way I remember it? Can you help me understand that? I collected a tremendous amount of material documents and letters, pictures, and so on. So while the basic frame of the book is memory, I would like to believe that it's a reported memoir. And I interviewed dozens of people uh, to be sure I was getting certain things right. And, you know, memory is funny um, in the sense that memory sometimes, my memory turns out, was very good for the things I cared about, (laughs) less good about things that I didn't. 
So I had to I had to really report the story of my life, which I did. Who uh, who came up with the title and especially good view? I did. That was entirely my title. And the interesting thing about it is I, I came up with the title very early in the process because I knew that was what I was going to be doing. I was going to be writing about my view, my view of the world that I have lived in. And watching history happen is the is the subtitle. And then my editor, Paul Golub, told me that Yogi Berra actually did say, you can uh, observe a lot by watching. And I thought, wow, man, am I ever going to do, <laughs> you know, that's me. And I'm observing a lot by watching. And Yogi Berra actually attracted, he actually did say that. Uh, in your book, you quote Rush Limbaugh as calling you uh-huh. a huge uh-huh. far-left liberal who was bankrolled right. by George Soros. Break, oh, my God. break that down. That First, what do you think of Rush Limbaugh, the now deceased Rush Limbaugh? Well, I, I, you know, I really had absolutely no contact with Rush Limbaugh. I never listened to his show. I never read any of his books. I just knew what he stood for, and obviously it was not something that appealed to me in the slightest. So I can't really comment on Rush Limbaugh. I was proud that I ended up being denounced by him on a, a national radio. What about um, being a I'm, huge far-left liberal? I'm not a huge far-left liberal because I'm not huge. Uh, and I'm probably not what you would call a liberal in the sense that I don't have a defined political view because that's my life has been as a journalist, as a reporter, as an editor. I try to make sure that I keep an open mind on stuff until I make up my mind and then I move. I'll tell you a funny story, though. It's not in the book, Brian. The when, uh, Wall Street Journal uh, and an editorial once called, called me the Marxist-leaning Osnos because of my relationship to I.F. Stone, the great radical journalist, and George Soros. And I wrote to the publisher of the Wall Street Journal. I said, this is completely cockeyed. I said, this is the craziest thing I've been called since I was called a spy, CIA spy, by the KGB in Moscow. And you know what? They ran a little correction. We were wrong. Sorry. <laughs> and so then I feel vindicated. the final part of that is, uh, have you been bankrolled by George Soros? And who is he? No, not in the slightest. In fact, <laughs> we published George Soros' books, which means that we are in a position, or public affairs published George Soros' books. So rather than him giving us money, we were giving him money. So, yes. So George did not give us a penny. We gave George many pennies. For his work, why does so why do so many conservatives get so upset uh, and talk about George Soros so often? Well, I have answered that question uh, myself in a, a project that we just concluded, which is called George Soros: A Life in Full. I've known George for a very long time, even before I became his publisher. And the thing about George is that. To try and describe and define George is very difficult. He's 90, but he's so many things. He was a teenager during the Holocaust, managed to get out with his father who saved him. He was obviously a very successful financier. He calls himself a speculator. He's a philanthropist. He's a person who has political views, which he tries to support when he can with money. And I think the answer is this. Many, many rich people in the past who set up great foundations, 
like Rockefeller and Ford and so on. What they were doing is creating institutions. Carnegie created libraries and, and they did science. Rockefeller was science and uh, and and Ford was you know spent a lot of money on on technology. George Soros's money goes into values, social values, social justice, racial equality, and so on. And that makes some people very angry. But you know what? It blows. It, it rolls off his back. Uh, <laughs> uh, George says, "I'm old and I'm rich. What can they really do to me?" It's surprising to me how he's able to deal with the sort of vituperative attacks that are so often made against him. And and look, there was one slightly scary thing when somebody put a bomb in his mailbox, right? Well, that wasn't good. But uh, ultimately, George has, I wouldn't call it Zen. I think the part that really does get him is the fact that his homeland, Hungary, turned him into a par- you know, the totem of, of hatred. And they put his picture on the, on the street so that people would step on it when they went into the bus. Well, that doesn't, you know, that gives him a great deal of personal pain. But on the other hand, you know, George is not, absolutely not, what the right wing says he is, what the far right says he is. Like the Koch brothers who have supported all kinds of things that, uh, you know. I'll tell you another thing about George. All the great institutions which he supported, Central European University, Open Society uh, Foundations and so on, have one thing in common. They don't carry George's name. He does this because he wants to. I think eventually this, somebody will put this name on stuff. But he's not one of these people who has to put his name on everything. So, I, as you can tell, I'm an admirer of George's, uh, not because he's rich and not because he's my publisher, but because I've seen him up close and I admire his, his determination to, to lead the world in a better place than he found it. You credit the fall of the Soviet Empire with three people, Pope right. John Paul II, Andrei Sakharov, and there he is again, George Soros. Why? Well, the first one, uh, John Paul, you remember that great line of Stalin's, how many divisions does the Pope have? You know, how tough can the Pope really be? I was in Poland in 1979 when the Pope made his first trip to, to his homeland, Poland. It was, it was just about this time. It was June of 1979. And I knew watching the Pope in Poland that the days of the, you know, communist leadership were numbered. Uh, The entire country, literally the entire country turned out to see him. The degree to which people were devoted to John Paul as a, a figure of national pride was extraordinary. And I said, you know what? These Ruskies and their, you know, communist partners here in, in, in Warsaw, they're not going to make it. And you know what happened? Three months later, Lech Valenza let us strike in Gdansk, and 10 years later, the communists were gone. So that was why I say Pope John Paul was pivotal. Sakharov was, a, I, I don't think I really need to describe him, but he was perhaps the Soviet Union, Russia's most honored scientist. He he was always credited with being the person who developed the H-bomb for the Soviets, and, and he was a scientist. And then later on, he became an outstanding figure in what were called shorthand dissidents. But I always thought of them more as democratic activists. They were people who saw in the Soviet Union a country that needed to be changed. And they took the, had the courage, and Sakharov led it, 
to uh, you know to stand up to the Kremlin. Think about that. That's not that's not it. And he did it in his slippers from his kitchen. He was a very unassuming fellow, but tough as old boots when when it when the when it when it matters. So Sakharov represented something that in the end prevailed all across Eastern Europe, which were the democratic activists. Tragically, the work that they did in bringing down the Soviet Union hasn't led to democracies all over Eastern Europe. But that's a whole other story. And finally, Soros. Soros, I, I say, was the beau ideal of every communist, a very, very rich man. So in the uh, 80s, when things began to loosen up a little bit, and he came and said, you know, let me, uh, let me set up this, uh, this little organization here. Uh, you know, we'll call it Open Society. They said, sure, if you give us the money, uh, if you pay for it, we'll let you do it. They didn't realize that he was really doing something subversive. He was creating civil society in countries which didn't have it. And by the time the Soviet Union collapsed and the Soviet Empire collapsed, all across Eastern Europe, George had placed, George and his foundations had civil society institutions, things that help people understand everything from culture to politics to he, he at one point when he realized that the Russian scientists were no longer being paid of anything that they could live on. He actually gave grants to Russian scientists. He gave money to Czech artists. So what he was doing was creating civil society in an autocratic country. So that's the three. One is the Pope, one is Sakharov, and one is one is spiritual, one is democratic, and one is, in my view, the person who created civil society. When were you in the Soviet Union working for the Washington Post? 1974 until 1977, which was the mid-70s. First thing that comes to mind when you think of your time there? <laughs> well, I guess the, the word we always use is enthralling. The thing about it is that the... Russia is now is now Russia. Russia is now and always has been a completely fascinating country. In part, its scale, its history, and its limitations. The Soviets said that they were, you know, a great power, and in many ways they were a great power, mostly in nuclear weapons. But you couldn't, you know, you couldn't buy a good piece of meat in Moscow. <laughs> the elevator wouldn't work. In, in, in uh, August, literally in Moscow, they turned off the hot water because they had to clean the pipes. And I used to say that this is a country that believes it's a superpower, and in many ways it is, but ultimately it's not. So I think of a country that was has a great history, but never really, not really at all, was what it believed it would be. What does it make that matters well, literature, for sure. I mean, you're talking about contemporary Russia or historical? Yeah, I mean, you know, try to get a profile of what it is even today after all these well, years. Uh, today it's harder to say, but I can tell you that, uh, you know, many of the greatest works of, of literature were written by Russians, uh, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and so on. There was great music in Russia. Um, I think that there is, as we discovered over and over again, do not underestimate the, the degree to which the Russians are patriotic when it comes to saving their country. Um, I mean, the, the pressures they were under during World War II from Hitler and uh, 20 million people died, uh, Russians, it, you know, they, they have – the Russian army is not easy to defeat as Napoleon discovered and as Hitler discovered. 
Um, so there is a kind of you know, strength, inner strength of the Russian character. There's a, a, a you know, very high level of, of cultural achievement. Unfortunately, they've never figured out how to run the country in a democratic way. You know, you, I say about the current leadership of the Soviet Union, of, of Russia, you took the communists out of Russia, but you didn't take the Russians out of Russia. And what is Putin? He's just a latter-day czar. That's what he is. The Russians you, have never, ever figured out how to run their country in a way that does not have ultimately a czar or a general secretary at the top. Well, as you say in your book, you did books with Boris Yeltsin. You did a book uh, on Mr. Putin, a book on Anatoly Dobrynian. Uh, go back right. to any. How well did you know Boris Yeltsin? I knew Boris Yeltsin probably better than any other publisher because I did two books with him. Um, I, I visited him at his home uh, outside Moscow. I, he hosted a dinner for me and other publishers, a very fancy dinner in the Kremlin. Um, and I worked very closely, believe it or not, with his daughter and his personal representative, who they eventually got married, uh, on his diaries. So I was able to see Boris Yeltsin up close. How did you get and there in the first place? How? Why did you know? Why were you in the inner circle, and why did you have the the, the meal? How did that I wouldn't work? call it the inner circle. I would call it I would call it the circle. But the reason was that first it was you know one of these sort of strange Russian things. Uh, Yeltsin actually had a very very good literary agent in London. A very good one is the same guy who represented other major figures in that part of the world, and he was legit. And he said, do you want to do this book with Yeltsin? And um, there was a, somebody who was going to pick up the tab for, for the book, uh, for Yeltsin. Um, you know, I, it was kind of murky because Russian things are, but I was confident that it was, this was, there was, there was no sort of sinister side to it. Um, and we did the first book, uh, which we call The Struggle for Russia, which in retrospect was way too pompous a title. But then we did Midnight Diaries, which was the second book, which really was his diaries. And I was able to, you know, the big question about Boris Yeltsin, was he a falling down drunk? Was that all he was? No, he was much more than that. He was what the Russians call a mujik, which is to say a guy, a man of some strength, and uh, and formidable courage, and otherwise he would not have been able to tackle the job that he had in the 90s. The Russia of the 90s was chaos. Think about it. After 70 years of the Soviet Union, it collapsed. There were almost no 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 violence. There were all of those countries that this had been in the Soviet Empire, which all broke off. Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, you know, all of these, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, the places that no one outside the Soviet Union really had ever heard of. And uh, they're all countries. And Boris Yeltsin let it happen and tried to create a new democratic society. Ultimately, he failed uh, because I don't think anybody could have done it. It was chaos. But it was not sinister chaos. In most respects, in other words, it, it, it was not a society in which people were being tortured. It was not a society in which people were being uh, you know, persecuted. It was a society trying to find its way, and the West really didn't know how to handle that. And as so often happens, the stereotype, the 
the myth, the matter wasn't a myth, it was true. The belief was, ah, he's just a drunk. Well, the truth of the matter is he was an alcoholic, knew it. And, and the last couple of years of his life, he had a heart problem, went to Germany. They rewired his heart and so on. He stopped drinking. The last year of his life, he was much more clear-headed than he was at times when he was drinking. Of all so, that, was he a perfect man? Of of all well, of all the books that uh, you sold connected with Russia, Yeltsin, Putin, Dobrynin, and of course the four books with Natan Sharansky, which one sold the best? Which one sold the best? Well, I will tell you this: none of them, not one was what would be classified as a, 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 a traditional bestseller. Um, and I'm not at this point in my trajectory uh, regretful of that. I think that there's a limit, uh, particularly in this country, the United States, to people's interest in stuff like that. Um, probably, i tell you, the Dobrynin, believe it or not, the Soviet ambassador in Washington for 30 years, of the 60s to the 90s, his book, which we did, which was called In Confidence, was chosen by the New York Times the year it was published as one of the best books of the year. It was thought to be extraordinarily insightful and, and a, a real book. And it, he was featured on 60 Minutes and, and so on. And Dobrynin had something that no other Russian in our experience had, which is he had an, abis- an ability to communicate clearly uh, his views uh, to the world uh, after, when he was when he left the ambassadorship. It was a very good book. It was a very very good book. Did it sell well? I don't remember, but you know, being called by the New York Times one of the five best nonfiction books of the year was striking, considering that he was a Soviet ambassador. You say that Natan Sharansky was. Sharansky was your personal hero. And then you say that uh, when you talk about you and uh, Mr. Sharansky, that two men of common Jewish heritage with sharply different views explain who he is and that statement. Sharansky, uh, I first met in the mid-'70s when I first arrived, and he was called the spokesman for Jewish dissidents. These are the people who wanted to leave the country and weren't allowed to. And I was introduced to him, and I looked at this guy. He was then in his 20s, and he was kind of short and bald. And I thought to myself, well, you know, there's something going on here that I can't recognize from the top of his head. But what happened was that as time came on, I found that he really did have the integrity, the fortitude, and ultimately the courage to take on the Kremlin, not just as a someone who wanted to leave, because wanting to leave is a very straightforward issue, but as an advocate for democracy. And the result was, you know, ultimately when you say, you know, what was our relationship? Well, I have KGB documents where it was decided by the Politburo of the Soviet Union. Think about that. The Politburo of the Soviet Union decided that they were just going to, quote, discredit me, attack me. And they put him in jail for nine years. I went home, and he went to prison. I was supposed to be a CIA handler. So, you know, that's a tie <laughs> forever. It's a bond. 
But the thing that always impressed me was that he never lost his sense of self. When when they first arrested him in 1997, 1977, they took him to this KGB prison, took away his clothes, told him he was going to be treated, uh, tried for treason, which is a capital offense. The thought that went through his mind was, they cannot humiliate me. Only I can humiliate myself, which in my view is the ultimate existential thought. And when, after nine years, he was finally being released in a sort of ersatz trade for a spy, because that's the only way it would happen, they took him to the Glanicke Bridge in Berlin where, where they would make these swaps. And they told Sharansky, you cross the bridge in a straight line. Just go from here, cross the bridge, but don't, you know. You know what he did? He had no belt, so he was holding up his pants. He zigzagged across the bridge. When he got to Israel and became a political figure in Israel, the politics of Israel, which we still do not really understand, the culture of Israel, the United States, Americans particularly don't understand, he was identified as a right-winger. No, he wasn't. Well, he was. But that was the right wing. Was He said, you cannot create a democracy in Palestine by simply saying, let's have elections. You have to create a democracy from the ground up. And that was never done. That was never done. So I think his, you know, he would say, well, look, when I was a dissident and in prison, I was an inspiration. In politics, well, a bit of a disappointment. So, you know, he has a sense of humor, a sense of irony, a sense of, 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 of where he belongs in the world that I have always admired. And uh, I know enough about him to know, you know, we paid him a big advance at Random House for his first book, Fear No Evil, which was his prison book, which is still in print and a wonderful book. Um, and I once asked him, but the book didn't sell as well as we'd hoped it would. And I said, so, Natan, you know, how did you feel about the money that we gave you? He said, what you did is you made it possible for me not to bend. Imagine, starting from scratch, after nine years in prison, with his finally meeting with his wife, he had the money to be able to build a life without having to accommodate other people's demands. And I think that was a, another way in which I admired him. So that's he, it. He's still alive, 73 years old. Are you in touch with him at all, and where is he living? I'm, I haven't talked to him since yesterday. <laughs> he uh, literally, he lives in Israel. Uh, we published his the fourth book we published, which is called Never Alone, is uh, kind of a, a book that traces both the prison years, the uh, political years, and his years as the head of the Jewish agency, which attempts to deal with Jewish relationships around the world, which are a mess. I mean, there's no question anybody looking at it hard now would say that in the you know for the first time really since the end of world war ii the divisiveness among jews and the divisiveness about israel is so profound that the future is not clear and he was trying to deal with that uh, again it didn't work because um, that's where we are now i mean we all know that israel is a source of great for many people a, a sort of, of great chagrin because it's not the country that that with the values and the approach to the Palestinians that people would want them to have. So he's still there, still holding forth. As I said, I talked to him yesterday. The first ever Book Notes was in 1989, and it was with really, it wasn't called Book Notes, but it was with Neil Sheehan. And I mention that only because the person we talked most about in those interviews 
was a man named John Paul Van. You knew him. Who is he? I did. And what years were you a reporter in Vietnam? I got there in uh, late 70 and was there uh, until March of 73. I left for a couple of months, but came back. Uh, so I was there basically for two years. And I met John Paul Van, as most reporters did, or a great many reporters did. And when I heard in 1972 that the great Neil Sheehan was planning to write a book about John Paul Van, I said, that's going to be the definitive book about Vietnam. Why? Because John Paul Van, who came as an, as an officer and was eventually a colonel, John Paul Van was the sort of ne plus ultra of both American, the sort of the ability of Americans to delude themselves, then recognize it, but not being able to extricate. What it means is that Van and the military and the United States went to Vietnam to make Vietnam safe for democracy. Well, there was no democracy in Vietnam. To stop the spread of communism. Well, you know that that didn't work. So Van became in his own way, uh, I wouldn't call him an apostate, but he certainly was had the, the dry eye to, uh, to see what was happening. And that's one of the reasons why reporters like me liked him so much. I say he was a metaphor for the American experience. He went there with good intentions, recognized that those intentions were never going to be fulfilled. And in the end, he died in a chopper crash in 72. He was there no longer in military. He was now a a leading civilian. So I I always thought that, you know, John Paul Vance said something that to me is the one of the great, really, truly great insights, not only about Americans in Vietnam, but Americans generally in their foreign policy is that, he said the problem wasn't that we only had 10 years in Vietnam. The problem was we had one year 10 times. The failure to learn, the failure to absorb from experience. You know, people who read the 60 volumes of the Pentagon Papers, which just celebrated their 50th year of revelation, you know, as everybody always talks about the secrets at this point, I always thought what it showed really was the ignorance. We went to a country where we didn't speak the language. We had no idea what the history was. and said, we're going to make them safe. Well, they didn't want to be. Van understood that, and that's why John Paul Van and Neil Sheehan's book, Bright Shining Lie, is the most important book ever done about the Vietnam era for the United States. Putting your own comments on Vietnam aside, uh, the people that you've published uh, through the years from the Vietnam experience, Morley Safer, Malcolm Brown, Jack Lawrence, Stanley Carno, William Prochnow, Robert McNamara— which of those books um, you think mattered the most and would be worthy of somebody, if they're studying the Vietnam War, would go back and read today? Well, I don't think there's any question that the McNamara book was the most important book I did on Vietnam, and, and certainly one of the most important books I did altogether. You know, we're talking just a few days after the death of Donald Rumsfeld. And, um, you know, Rumsfeld and McNamara were basically – both protagonists in, in failed American, or bedeviled, I call it, American wars. The difference was that McNamara reckoned with it, and the book he wrote, in retrospect, was an extraordinary piece of work in which he said the war was wrong and we owe it to future generations to explain why. Bob McNamara pissed people, I mean, infuriated the people who in the country because they said, well, if he knew then that the war was hopeless, why didn't he say it then? And that's a, an issue that I deal with in the, my book, and I think he dealt with himself. Um, I think that Bob McNamara 
died better understood. He was never going to be forgiven. The thing that's striking about Rumsfeld in reading all the obituaries is Rumsfeld was every bit as arrogant and every bit as wrong as uh, Bob McNamara. But for some reason, he wasn't held accountable. And I've always been struck by that. Why? Why wasn't he? In your opinion? I think, you know, an awful lot of it had to do with personality. Bob McNamara uh, was carried the the weight of being a bombastic. You know, he he spoke with such certainty that when it turned out he was wrong, people held it against him. Um, Rumsfeld had a capacity for irony, known unknowns and all this other bit. You know, you can get away with a lot. Henry Kissinger is the perfect example of this. You can get away with an awful lot in this world if you have a sort of aura of self-deprecation uh, in the case of, of Kissinger or irony in the case of Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld was very handsome. He had, you know, he, 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 he twice defense secretary, once in his 30s, once in his 70s. He had all these other major positions. He, he was an extremely successful man. And uh, finally... The war in Iraq didn't cost us the 60,000, whatever it was, thousand lives that Vietnam did and wasn't perceived ultimately as a complete loss. That was what Vietnam was, whereas the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, they never really got resolved. I mean, we're seeing what's happening in Afghanistan. So he wasn't really held to account in the same way. What I, 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 I would point out to you that there were two movies made by Errol Morris the great documentary filmmaker. One was of called The Fog of War, which was Bob McNamara. And the other one, the title of which I've forgotten, I think was Known Unknowns, which is the one about Rumsfeld. And if you want to see the character of these two men in their 70s, that's where to go. Look at the movie. Fog of War won the, the documentary for Oscar. And the Errol Morris film about Rumsfeld showed you an arrogant, smug man who had no sense of the of the failures of, of what he had promoted. In your book, you talk about, and I just put a bunch of things on the table, you can sort them out, that you had mm-hmm. dinner on more than one occasion with Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post in Georgetown, that Robert McNamara was a f- close friend of hers. and I'm not sure I remember it right, but it seemed like he might have been on her board at one point. Uh, you can clear that I don't one think up. he was, but he, he certainly was a close friend. And uh, yeah, but it's the whole thing here where you're living in Washington. Everybody is a friend of everybody else. How much protecting did the Post do of Robert McNamara during that time? I don't think they did. Um, you know, one of the amazing things about the Washington Post uh, in the era of Catherine Graham and, and Ben Bradley was that it was it was held in very high social regard. Catherine Graham was the great hostess doyenne and so forth at Washington. Bradley was the swaggering editor. But it was also a newspaper which really stood for something. And that was Bradley in particular, but also Mrs. Graham when it came to things like Watergate, um, where she took a real risk for the business by supporting Woodward and Bernstein. So... Um, yeah, there was a whole kind of social stratosphere that that existed in Washington at the time, uh, in which Mrs. Graham certainly was one, and Bradley would have been one if he'd 
you know, he's not the kind of guy. He never joined the gridiron, for example, or the alfalfa. He wasn't a joiner in that sense. But everybody wanted to be his friend. But they were tough, and the Post was tough. And the Post did what it had to do. No newspaper ever gets it right all the time. Uh, but in the 18 years I worked at the Post, I always knew I was working for a, a place that I could be proud of. Before we finish this conversation, I want to bring up, totally unrelated to what we've been talking about, bring up your high school years, uh, <laughs> the people that you knew in high school and the place that you lived in New York City and uh, the, your your time at Brandeis. Who were some of the characters, the known characters uh, that you knew besides Stephen Boschko and others? Yeah. Well, as a kid, I grew up in the on the west side of Manhattan in the immediate years after the Holocaust. Remember, I arrived in the United States in 1944, got off a ship with my parents, a trip ship that had crossed the Pacific from India, and I, got, I, I was in a basket. So I grew up in a post-war period in the Upper West Side. My folks who had come to New York basically with nothing but their wits, uh, well, a bit more than that, but they, but they you know, established a, a life of, of real consequence. And I had a, I would say, a very, you know, good, solid growing up with people. I, I like to say about my folks and my brother, who was 12 years older than I am, that we were strangers with the same DNA. So I was being sort of created by my environment. And as, as a teenager, my folks just basically looked at me and said, we don't know what to do with this fellow. They sent me off to boarding school. To anybody who's ever read Catcher in the Rye, uh, the great boarding school, the book about uh, Holden Caulfield. And I went, it was 1958, so it was around the time the book was originally published. That was kind of the way I felt my, you know, being at a boarding school and, and kind of coping with the... The truth is, uh, Brian, and it, it's the theme of the book, really, is that wherever I went, I was present, but I was also observing, which is why I can write about the people who were there with me at, at, at Cheshire and at Cheshire Academy, which is found in 1794, which is one of the, we used to say at Cheshire when I was there, we had boys kicked out of the finest schools in America. Uh, it's a very different place today because it's full of kids who come from around the world and parents who are paying money to get their kids the best possible education. Brandeis was founded right after World War II as a secular Jewish university. Um, it was meant to, it was originally founded to be the Harvard of the Jews because Jews weren't getting into Harvard until they were. Um, Brandeis's most famous graduates, some of them, I mean, I guess to me, the most amusing thing about Brandeis is at one time they had four people on the FBI's most wanted list. Abby Hoffman, the great yippie, um, and, and Angela Davis, who was, became a very formidable figure in the, on the far left of the civil rights movement, and two bank robbers. And I used to say, well, those nice Jewish people in Palm Beach who were, you know, <laughs> giving millions and millions of dollars to get Brandeis going. They hadn't really counted on the fact that there would be four people who were on the FBI's most wanted list. Eventually, I think Brandeis has become a very good first-class university, but it's not as distinctive as I think it was going to be when it was first founded because it's no longer quite as necessary as it was in the immediate aftermath of World War II. I think also that the first very, very distinguished group of professors at Brandeis were people who had been, because of the McCarthy era, they had been tagged as leftists, they couldn't get a job, so they, they went to Brandeis. 
And many of them were also uh, refugees from the best universities in in the Europe during World War II. So it was a very distinguished faculty. Today, it's a very distinguished faculty. It's just not as distinctive. Uh, so I think that Brandeis has done very, very well. But I, it's not really flattering to say this, but I look at Georgetown as a, as a Jesuit university and Brandeis as a Jewish university, and I said that Georgetown has somehow created itself, or Notre Dame, have created themselves in a more distinctive way, a uh, more distinguished way than Brandeis has been able to do so far. I want to go back to the names. I'll just mention them and you can fill in the blanks. Bobby Goldfine, uh, son of uh, <laughs> the son of, no, he's not the son, but the son no, of Zeppo no. Marx. Nep- uh, yeah, the, no, uh, he was the, he was son of Zeppo Marx. Yeah, he was one of the, you know, I always said, if you, if you go to a place like Brandeis, Bobby Goldfine's uncle, Bernard Goldfine, was a was a fired in the Eisenhower administration for taking a vitamin coat. No, no, he wasn't fired. His he he, he the, the chief of staff Sherman Adams was fired because Bobby Goldfein's uncle gave him a vicuna coat. That was the scale of scandal in the Eisenhower era. So we had a guy who, who came from a scandalous family. We had Zeppo Marx. Uh, his his uh, mother eventually married. Uh, I, I get there were so many marriages here. His mother eventually married Frank Sinatra. What about the bastard um, son yeah. of Haile Selassie? Well, I am assuming that Haile Selassie had a great many <laughs> bastard sons, but we—he <laughs> was no one ever really was able to nail the exact identification. That his name was Bengasha Adamasu, and uh, you know, a Cheshire of that time, you can't say that in color terms it was diverse. Uh, so here he was—he was an Ethiopian, and he desperately wanted to go to West Point, so he would march up and down in one of the in front of the dormitory carrying a broom. And it was kind of poignant. Um, yeah, Chester had a lot of characters in it. Um, and fortunately for me, as I said, because I was there, um, I was able to kind of appreciate the quality of a school of that kind with that kind of a history. I mean, it really was 1794. It was a real, it was the 12th oldest school, the private school in America. So it had a great tradition of a certain kind. Um, it was rough and tumble, and it was good for me to go to a rough and tumble school. This, this quote from your book, and we're about to wrap up, and, and it's, quote, Sometimes mm-hmm. it is best to subliminate the urge to retaliate, unquote. <laughs> well, uh, I think all of us in various ways over our lives come up against something where we would like to exact certain kinds of revenge. Uh, or fight a battle to, because we think there's an injustice to us, not a broader injustice, but, you know, in my case, in business terms, I realized, and let me try to put this as clearly as I can in a, in a couple of sentences, Public Affairs, which is the company I started in 1997, this is now 2021, it's 24 years old, we were a small publishing company with a mission, and um, navigating the business strategy, and I'm not a, you know, I wasn't an experienced businessman. I came to understand uh, that if I wanted public affairs to make it to what I say the other shore, and it has, it's now owned by Hachette, major publishing company, that I had to sometimes choose my battles over money with the people who were handling finances. Um, very simply, Brian, 
that anybody who goes into business needs to know this. The most important thing you have to be able to do if you want to earn a business is pay your bills. And how you pay your bills is how you endure. And I learned to pay my bills no matter what, but not think that it was all about profit. I used to say we were seeking profit and not for profit, but if we couldn't pay our bills, we wouldn't have gotten to 24. But at the end of your experience with public affairs and the time when you learned about Frank Pearl and what had happened with uh, Perseus, the over, uh, I don't know what you call it, the <clears throat> holding company that owned it, owned eventually uh, public affairs. You well, were, well they, they were the majority owner. We, we, we were a partnership with Perseus. But what did you learn about Frank Pearl at the end? I know he's now no longer with us, but. Well, uh, he's, he's, he, uh, he died in, in uh, 2000. Frank, Frank Pearl was one of those people, self-made millionaire, multi-millionaire, with the good intention of creating a, a group of independent publishing companies, which, in fact, he did. Uh, I used to call them startups and cast-offs. They were small companies that other people didn't want, and in my case, a startup. And Frank did support those companies and create an infrastructure which enabled the Perseus Books Group to do well enough to eventually get acquired by Hachette. But what I came to understand, and certainly clearly after he died, that there were a lot of shells moving around when it came to money. Uh, private equity is very, very dependent on, on acquiring debt, and they did acquire debt to maintain the businesses. Frank, uh, since he died you know, sort of relatively quickly of lung cancer, he had moved some money around and ended up with the partners he had suing him and so on. So he created a, a very, very difficult situation for the Perseus Books Group uh, because we didn't know exactly how the finances were working. But somehow, and I, I you know, somehow we navigated, uh, and we got to the point where the Hachette, very, 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 very good company, Hachette, bought the entire enterprise, including public affairs. And I have to say that after five years of being Hachette, They've treated us with respect. My pride, to the extent, Brian, and, and I know that you and I share this, is in creating an institution that has some purpose and value and seeing it hold its own in a very crowded, very complicated cultural, political, and financial marketplace. You created your own uh, book operation, book publishing a small company to publish your own book called Platform, and uh, you created a website, and then you've now had several weeks after the publication of your memoir. How do you rate the experience now? Oh, I think it was it was extraordinarily important in its own way to me. And I'm not saying so for the, the world. What I I came to understand, Brian, is I could not publish this book by in a very traditional way, which is find an agent and have somebody, you know, pay me money for it and so on. I decided because I know so much about publishing, I could publish, I could create a company, which I did. And it, 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 I think of it as a gig company, meaning in the same way people do movies and theater where they put teams together on specific projects. That's what we did. We've got a couple more projects in the works. I told you there's one about George Soros coming. Um, and... Uh, how do I feel about it? Well, <laughs> I'm doing what I'm doing is uh, I'm very, very, you know, things like this podcast and the 
Q&A, and I've done Morning Edition and News Hour and um, a whole lot of events with booksellers, um, all Zoom, of course. But I have absolutely adamantly and so far successfully refused to ask about sales because I know too many authors who undermine their own accomplishment by fretting over whether they sold books here or there. The way I figure it is I published this book. Uh, I hope it succeeds. I, I funded the publication. I, mean, I hope it succeeds financially. But if it doesn't, <clears throat> nobody can fire me. So I have not asked anything about sales but I have gotten the ability uh, through the book itself to reach really millions of people through all the ways of the media stuff I've gotten. Uh, book reviews, I was stunned. There was Washington Post. My great Washington Post got, gave me a kind of sour review, but that's a whole other story. Um, and, but other than that, it's been really wonderful. Um, I'm so pleased with the, with the response from booksellers. Uh, to these interviews I've done. I've done three with my son, a writer, uh, which is always fun. Uh, I did the New York Public Library. I've done the Council on Foreign Relations. And, you know, this is a chance to put my ideas and thoughts out there in a way that I could not have done if I hadn't written the book. I can't let it pass. I have to ask you, um, you mentioned the Washington Post review done by Steve Roberts, Husband of Cokie mm-hmm. Roberts, former New York Times reporter. Uh, it wasn't. Um, well, I don't know how to characterize it. I would. I would say it was an unusual. Uh, it got off to a good start, uh, but it didn't end well. What's the backstory, if any, that you can tell us? Well, I certainly don't know the backstory, uh, but I would guess this: they thought at the Post that there was a logical person to review it. We're more or less the same age. He was a Times person, and I was a Post person. And uh, I didn't really know Steve at all well. I mean, I, 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 you know, Cokie and Steve, we were all in the same universe in Washington. But I wouldn't say that we were friends. Um, what I, the closest I can come to it is that about the time I started public affairs and all the stuff in the book about public affairs and my experience at Random House and so on, was about the time that Steve left the Times, and began teaching at George Washington Journalism. So the last sort of, you know, 30 years of each of our lives have diverged. And my sense of the review was when he looked at my life and his life, he didn't much like what I was writing about. I mean, why is he bothering? So I I really, I felt, I I mean, I felt bruised. You know what I did say? I said to the people at the Post, because I'm sure that was not their intention. It's just conceivable. But I I said this, look, I'm just glad it's not my eulogy. That's all, the (laughs) review. And, uh, and, and, you know, you got to, if you're going to write a book and you're going to put yourself out there, you got to be ready that some people aren't going to like it. But I was surprised because there wasn't a reason really why Steve would have looked at exactly the same book that so many other people looked at and admired and decided that it wasn't worth the trouble. The title of the book, and especially good view, our guest has been Peter L.W. Osnos. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks, Brian. As always, a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. 
you can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.